are the, the eyes and ears of the public and we have a duty to keep doing the stories that we do. Otherwise, you might as well not be in the job. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Kate McClymont is one of Australia's leading investigative journalists. She's won five Walkley Awards, delivered the prestigious Andrew Olley Lecture, and is a member of the Australian Media Hall of Fame. During her time investigating underworld figures, she's received insults, death threats, and lawsuits. But somehow she's maintained her sense of humour, which is something we'll explore today. Uh, now, this isn't a political podcast, but Kate, before I start asking you questions, I have to make the point that no one who knows your work could miss the fact you've written a lot about political corruption, uh, including by past members of the Labor Party. Um, so as somebody who's been a member of the Labor Party for all of my adult life, um, thank you for that. Uh, ours, <laughs> I don't know whether I'd be saying thank you for that. No, ours, ours is genuinely a better party for getting rid of some of the figures that you've helped, helped expose. Yes, and look, it's not uh, driven by any ideological bent. That's the thing about journalism is that you have to do it without fear or favour. So let's start with your uh, your, your early ex- memories of, uh, of writing. You grew up in uh, in Orange in New South Wales uh, on an orchard, uh, sort of uh, appropriately enough. Um, did you uh, d- did you enjoy writing at school? Do you remember? Some Look, um, my passion in life then and still is English literature, and that's what I studied at university. I was doing arts law. But I did um, a year. I did an honours year in English literature, and I just thought I'll just take a tiny break from the law, and I never went back. And every now and then I have a slight twinge where I think, oh, maybe I should have done my law degree. And then I think, you know, life takes such serendipitous paths. And I think if that had happened, I wouldn't have been a journalist. And I, you know, most days I just thank my lucky stars that I do this job because it is, you know, really such a a privilege to have a job like this. It's interesting, it's fascinating and to have a job where you can actually make a difference and Mm. do some public good is a reward in itself. Well, I've got a law degree, but I think you've spent more time in courts than I, than, <laughs> no, than no, I have, so, uh, so you may have equalised that. Um, you did some unusual things while you were uh, at, at university, including sitting on a box in King's Cross, answering people's questions or delivering insults so, to them. Oh, look, yes, that was... Um, I had a busking booth at King's Cross, and I have absolutely no... Um, musical talent whatsoever, but I can speak. (laughs) So it was questions answered 40 cents, arguments 50 cents and verbal abuse a dollar. And I used to make about $17 an hour, which back then was, you know, a a fortune. So in fact, I was driving along um, that same uh, place in King's Cross only the other night and I said to a friend of mine, that's the corner that I used to busk on. (laughs) 
This is near the corner of the bourbon and beef stack, right? Just down from there. It's where the old Commonwealth Bank used to be. There's a nice little curvy building. Yes, so the um, I used to be on a corner that was quite popular for um, prostitutes. It was the prostitutes' corner. And they'd come along and say, you're ruining our business. Could you move along? And I'd say, well, look, if you want to have an argument about it. So they'd all put their money in and start <laughs> arguing about how I wasn't good for their trade. But I said, look, there's lots more people here. So, yes, interesting. And this turned out to be useful when you uh, then went for one of the most competitive jobs in journalism, which is a, a cadetship at the Sydney Morning Herald. Right? Oh, yes, I think they were far more interested in my busking than in my university degree or volunteering at the local radio station. So it's funny how things that you don't think might be interesting to other people often are. And I think it was that they thought, well, look, if you can do that, you can probably talk to people um, in journalism. So do you then advise other people who are uh, considering uh, del uh, del delving into a, a competitive field such as journalism to do slightly different things in order to... Look, I think so, but up? it's hard these days to know um, what people are looking for. I, I look at some of the graduates that come along and they've got about three degrees and they've got PhDs and they can speak fluent Chinese. So I think things have changed as to what people are looking for. And so uh, as, you, as you got into uh, journalism, you moved into investigative journalism fairly quickly and, uh, and it wasn't long before you found yourself covering the wedding of uh, a family member of, uh, of George Freeman. Uh, how did that work out? Well, actually, you? that wasn't as an investigative journalism. That was as... Um, I was actually the social reporter. This was as a cadet. I was a social <laughs> reporter. This was at the time when the Herald actually had outposts and there was the Eastern Herald. So I was meant to be chronicling the, the um, goings-on of, of Sydney society when it was just so boring that I decided that I might pop along to the wedding of um, one of George Freeman's uh, relatives. And I thought I was being very funny by saying that um, perhaps the bridal party was wearing sequins because that was the closest fashion accessory to armour plating. Well, I was then getting death threats from George Freeman in people ringing my house saying, George isn't happy. And I thought, oh, really? This? So this is... Um, so as a cadet, I was wow. um, on the, the wrong path. That is extraordinary. And how, how long were you at the Herald before you then uh, moved to Four Corners? So, yes, I had, um, I had a couple of years at the Herald and the Times on Sunday, and then I had a couple of years at Four Corners as a researcher. And I think it was about the week that I arrived, Chris Masters had just done the seminal work on the Moonlight State, which was corruption in the Queensland Police Force. And I seriously thought that I had died and gone to heaven. And it was really interesting for me um, doing in-depth stories, actually working for six weeks on the one story. And I found that really rewarding, like being able to get your teeth into something. And I um, spent most of my working time there working with Paul Barry. I think we did um, Alan Bond. We did, you know, Laurie Connell. And it was, a, it was an interesting time. 
And it did seem to me, in just in reading your accounts of that period, that that's the stage at which journalism changes, in your mind, from being a craft to a calling. Uh, you uh, you speak so lovingly of that those those periods in uh, cramped quarters in Gore Hill with uh, uh, Chris Masters and Mark Col Mark Colvin and, uh, and oh others. look it was it was just so much fun and I um, recently went to a farewell party for Deb Whitmont who was um, a researcher then a producer and has only just left as being a um, a correspondent for Four Corners. So that was in the late 80s and she's been there all this time and I think that I'm still really good friends with these people that I met, you know, 30 years ago. So uh, then you uh, you began a, a number of the uh, the investigations for which you've, uh, you're best known. Uh, perhaps you can sort of uh, tell us uh, in, in broad terms uh, the story of, uh, of the murder of Michael McGurk and how that unfolded. Well, look, it, funnily enough... Stories come to you in the most bizarre ways. And um, I was walking the dogs in the park and someone mentioned to me that there'd been a firebombing in Wolseley Road in Point Piper. Now, Wolseley Road is the wealthiest street in the entire nation. And people there are always knocking down perfectly grand homes to build even grander ones as a testament to their wealth. So a firebombing in Australia's richest street, what is not interesting about that? So um, a colleague and I started looking at this story and we found that the person who'd been charged with the said firebombing was one Michael McGurk who had been charged with it. Anyway, um, we wrote this story and he kept telling us, you know, there's more to this story. You know, you've got to be looking at Ron Medich, the property developer. And it turned out that Ron Medich part owned this house. Anyway, the week before he was murdered, um, Michael McGurk, you know, was saying to me, Ron Medich is going to have me murdered and he's going to have Lucky Gatilari do it. But, you know, I've got a tape that could bring down the government. It could expose Ron Medich. And I kept saying, well, you know, give us the tape. And he said, well, you need to write about Ron Medich. And I kept saying, it doesn't work like that. You know, we just don't do stories because people like you, you know, say that um, these things are happening. And then, of course, when he was murdered, you have a complete crisis of confidence. You know, mm. could I have done something? Did I know something? But... As people know full well, you can go to the police and they'll assess the threat as credible or not. And, you know, in that, in that case, I think there was probably little anyone... You know, you just don't believe that these kind of things can or will happen. But that was in 2009 and it's now nine years later and Rodden Menich has only just been found guilty of masterminding this crime. And you uh, you spent uh, quite a bit of time not just chatting with people but also on on, on stake stakeouts, uh, including uh, on one occasion uh, taking your dogs along in order to uh, to, to look a little uh, uh, to, oh. to blend blend in a little more <laughs> a little more readily. I know. I do think though that um, being Wolseley Road, as we say, um, I probably would have been better to either be a construction worker or a French maid because <laughs> at seven o'clock. 
or the construction workers arise to knock down the said houses, or the maids arrive to attend to these houses. But um, yes, yeah, so a year after the murder, I got a tip off that there were going to be arrests. The only problem was that I didn't know who they were going to arrest. So based on what McGurk had told me before he was killed, um, the Herald had organised this very um, you know, top secret stakeout of Lucky Gatellari's house, of his associate, Senad Kamenich, and of course of Ron Medich. Now, um, for those of you who don't know Sydney, um, Senad Kamenich and Lucky Gatellari lived in Sydney's western southwestern suburbs, you know, probably. 15 k's from the CBD, Ron Medich lived in the suburb next to me. So <laughs> I very kindly gave my colleagues Senad Kamenich and Lucky Gatellari's house and <laughs> there's me outside Ron Medich. So we always think that, you know, the police do these things, you know, it, it, you always hear of, a, a, you know, a dawn raid. So we think to get there at 5 a.m., so we're there at 5 a.m. and I remember the photographer was in the car in front of me and behind us was another car. So um, he texted, who's that in the car behind? And I remember undoing the glove box to get a bit of light and texting back, must be undercover police. <laughs> and then before I know it, my phone's pinging saying, oh, it's Natalie from online here. I'm thinking this is meant to be top secret and we've got Natalie from online. <laughs> In, in the car behind us. Anyway, so the hours passed, nothing happens. At 8 o'clock I go and buy coffee, nothing. 9 o'clock, nothing. And then after 9, I think, look, any police worth their salt, they're going to have, you know, raided people before they go to business. Mm. And then suddenly I get a call from Vander Carson, who was stationed at outside um, Lucky Gatellari's property, she, meanwhile, is starving, so she's gone to the local pie shop in, um, in nearby Chipping Norton. And then by the most amazing of coincidences, the head of homicide comes into the pie shop. So she knows that something <laughs> is happening, so everyone rushes back to their station where they are. There's guns drawn, they're being handcuffed, handcuffed. there's the, you know, the anti-terrorism squad... Ron Medich's house, nothing, 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 nothing. So I remember him, Ron Medich, coming roaring out of his house. He'd obviously been told they'd all been arrested, you know, in his shiny black murk. And so then there's a posse of John from photography, me and the two dogs, Natalie from online, <laughs> are all <laughs> in a car chase with Ron and uh, he's arrested two weeks later. So it was all a bit anticlimactic from our end of things that day. How did you feel when he was finally sentenced? He hasn't been sentenced yet. He has oh, been found. Sorry. He's been convicted. Um, and, look, I just think that money, money talks so much in this town because at the time... Uh, Lucky Gatellari and the others were all arrested and they sought legal help from Ron Medich who just shut them off. And so without any money, they couldn't afford to have, um, you know, top-class barristers. So in the end, they did plea deals and gave evidence against Medich. Medich spent six weeks in jail 
And then he had a really good barrister who, you know, argued his case. So he got bail in 2010. We're now 2018. Along the line, he has appealed every single point he could. He's gone all the way to the High Court on whether, you know, certain evidence should be um, admitted. Uh, at one stage, they successfully challenged um, the, I was to be a Crown witness to say what me, uh, what McGurk had told me, and they were successfully in getting that evidence ru uh, ruled to be too prejudicial to go to the jury. So I just think if he hadn't had money, a trial would have happened much earlier, as it was, this was his second trial. Mm. There was a, um, a, a three-month trial this time last year. So I think that, you know, and as time passes, a conviction becomes more difficult to achieve because people's memories fade or they die or things happen. So I, I just think that it's, um, it's lucky and I think good to the jury system mm. that uh, this is the outcome. So then there's uh, Eddie Obede. Um, what, what did Eddie Obede ever do? Well, that's what um, Eddie Obede's wife once said to waiting journalists. You know, what did we ever do to attract the attention of that woman? And it's not who you are, it's what you did. And... I first received a, um, material about Eddie Obede in 1999 and it was two engineers contacted me to say that they had the contract to provide the um, street poles on which banners um, were to be um, run up for the Sydney City Council. And they had, they claimed, two people came to see them who were sons of Eddie Obede and said, if you give us your City of Sydney contract, we'll make sure you get the Olympic contracts. And those two look at each other and say, who did you say you were? And they said, we're the sons of Eddie Obede. And the two engineers said, never heard of him. Anyway, they turned down that, um, that contract and then, lo and behold, they lost their contract at City of Sydney. And despite being the lowest ranked on the tender, it was the Obedes who got the contract. So I think that was my first encounter. And it was, you know, I have written so much about them over the years, but I think that it was slightly ironic that in some ways it was the street polls that brought them undone because... You know, scroll forward, you know, another, you know, more than a decade. And there are, um, the city of Sydney is pursuing the Obede company for $12 million in unpaid royalty payments. And when they didn't pay, they took them to court. So, and, and were successful. And Moses Obede argued that he really didn't have the money. He was dreadfully sorry, but the cupboard is bare. At which point the City of Sydney hired forensic accountants and were able to show, hold on, you're saying the cupboard is bare, but you've just bought, you know, a $4 million house and you've told the bank that you have got the following assets. And it was, um, you know, we've got cafes at Circular Quay, we've got an interest in a mining company, we've got this, we've got that. I'm sitting in court thinking, oh, this is 
this is unbelievable. This is the mother load because Moses had to choose which lie to tell. Does he confess to lying to the bank or does he say, I'm lying now? And that lie brought down the Obed empire because now we had conclusive proof that the Obeds did have a secret interest in cafes at Circular Quay, that they did have interests in um, you know, coal exploration licences and the like. And so now Eddie Obed is languishing in Berrimah Jail, having been convicted over the Circular Quay cafe leases. So I think it's, you know, the circle turns, as they say. It's a five-year term, as I understand it. Uh, yes, it's a five-year uh, maximum term and I think three years non-parole. But um, in March next year, he and former Minister Ian MacDonald will face their second criminal trial, Ian MacDonald having been convicted of a separate matter but also one of misconduct in public office. And they are both facing charges of misconduct in public office. About Ian MacDonald as mining minister, granting cold, coal exploration licences, which were eventually awarded to companies associated with the Obeid family. And your main source for uh, for, for your reporting on uh, on Eddie Obeid, uh, was that uh, documentary evidence in court or was it... Uh gossip, rumour, innuendo, uh, more uh, old-fashioned sleuthing. Look, for for that particular one about the cafe leases, that was from documents tabled in court. And um, on that occasion, the Obeds tried to have that um, restricted, so I had to represent myself in court and argue that there is a public right to access such information once it's been tendered in court. And I was very lucky that the judge agreed with me and granted me access to it. But look, it's one of those things that information comes to you in a variety of ways. And we were successfully sued by Eddie Obeid over a 2002 story in which we were um, told by four different sources that Eddie Obeid had asked for a million-dollar bribe, not for himself. It was to go to the Labor Party coffers. And that was to grant a piece of government land in order for the Bulldogs League team and the Liverpool Council to build combined league headquarters and council chambers. And we didn't have any documentation because there was none. And Eddie Obeid was able to successfully sue us for saying it it didn't happen, you made it up. And even though we had four different sources, a judge ruled that that wasn't sufficient. So, so that, I yes. mean, that, that must have been... Uh, Incredibly personally tough on you. I know you you said at the time that you were absolutely devastated, that you felt like a failure. Uh, you had you'd won a, a gold Walkley for the reporting, and you had uh, the, the the Walkleys saying that had they known. What no, no, no. That that wasn't quite correct. So what happened was that we won a Walkley for our coverage of the salary cap scandal, mm. and um, during the coverage of the calorie the salary cap scandal, the Eddie Obeid was an incidental reporting. And what happened later was that Mark Day, who was a columnist 
of on the Australian um, said that you know just said words to the effect that oh, you know maybe if the Walkleys had known that, but they were sort of separate issues really. Oh, thank you, thank you for correcting. I, I was I was less about nitpicking, but more about how you bounce back from uh, from from something like that, which is incredibly incredibly professionally tough and. Uh, uh, would have would have caused a lot of people to perhaps even rethink whether they were in the right profession at that stage. Oh, look, it, it is, and it's that. Um, look, as you say, I just felt so devastated. And also I felt that um, maybe I was in the wrong profession and how could, you know, how could we have got this wrong? But in the heart of hearts, you knew it wasn't wrong. And it was one of those things that I thought that I couldn't now write about Eddie Obeid because it would look like, um, you know, that we were just embittered and, um, you know, we had an axe to grind. But after a while, the stories kept coming. So you sort of thought, oh, look, I just have to get back on, on this horse. And so, well, look, we did really. And, you know, Eddie Obeid would say in Parliament, oh, you know, I've already been successful against Anne Davies and Kate McClymont. You know, I've had, you know, cause to sue them. And we would get letters from his lawyers saying, you know, I mean, in fact, not one, this wasn't a legal letter, but I got, um, Eddie Obeid said this to me on the phone. He said, I'll go for you again. I'll go for you. I'll go for your jugular. And it sort of is quite confronting when, you know, people say that to you because you think, oh, you know, I've just got to make sure this is right. I just have to. I can't um, let Eddie Obeid see any chink in the armour this time round. What, did that uh, change the way in which it affected you when you had the mistake over referring to the wrong Chris Brown? Oh, in, yes, uh, in the Eddie uh, Obeid book. In the, in the, in the Eddie oh. Obeid book. Uh, it turns out this is not Chris Brown, the American rapper, that there is yeah. in fact, uh, two, <laughs> two Australian Chris Browns, oh. uh, which, which you, which you yeah, mixed up. Yes, Having made that earlier mistake, oh. did that mean make it easier or, or no, harder shocking. still to bounce back? I know, and it, I know I'm getting yeah. to quite painful stuff, no, but I think no, it's, it's No, it is, it is terrible. And look, the only thing that you can do is say... This is a mistake. It's my mistake. I made it. I have no one to blame but myself. And um, just, you know, try to be as honest as you can and say, yes, mm. it is a mistake and I've made it. So it, it never helps, though. Uh in an emotional sense, did you have uh, a group of friends that you you reached reached out to? Were there things that you uh, did in a, you know exercise sense or meditation? Were there other ways in which you de you dealt with that quite harrowing experience? Look, in those circumstances, you just don't sleep. Um, you just you can't eat. You just feel physically sick. It I, I think it has a really deleterious effect on your health. And um, it's one of those things you just feel like, I just wish I could go to sleep, wake up in a month, and this is all behind me. And I'm sure it happens to people in public life, to all sorts of people. But it's one of those things where it's your family and friends that get you through, and they put it in perspective of, you know, um, no one has died Think, you know, the caravan will move on. And I um, I walk every morning. I, um, I've got two dogs, you know, my accomplices. 
And I find that that is a really therapeutic way to get up. And it gives you a chance to to think about things. Like mm. as you walk, you think, you know, not, not that you talk to yourself, but, you know, you go over, um, you know, things that are on your mind or things that you might have to do. And I just find it just, you know, one of the most enjoyable aspects of, of life, really. Do you uh, go out in bad weather as well? Yes. Huh? It doesn't matter what the weather is, um, I go out. It's, you know, I have a towel waiting at home to, <laughs> to, <laughs> dry, to, the dry, to dry the... But although there is nothing worse than than the smell of a wet dog. It's not... It, <laughs> and, and sometimes I, I try to walk along the streets where there's awnings. Yes. If it's in wet weather. You've also suffered the awful experience of, uh, of getting death threats, not, not once but, but multiple times. Uh, how, how did that affect you and, and how did you de- deal with that in a practical and an emotional sense? Look, I think it's always more worrying. I always worry about my family and not about myself. And I worried, look, when the children were small, I never let them know that um, we had to move house because there were death threats, you know, would always say, oh, you know, we're going on a little holiday. And um, they always sort of thought this was wonderful, even though we were in some horrible unit in the centre of, you know, the city that had bottle tops under the bed. And, um, um, look, those things can be disconcerting, but I am a bit of an optimist and I sort of think that I rationalise it by saying people don't actually want to kill you, they want you to stop what you are doing and I think that's bullying. So I think that it's our obligation as a journalist to go twice as hard, to not be intimidated by these things and I also think that, you know, we are the, the eyes and ears of the public and we have a duty to keep doing the stories that we do. Otherwise, you might as well not be in the job. If you're going to be, um, you know, cowed by those things or cowed, um, then don't do it. I mean, that's not to say that it doesn't, you know, sometimes make you feel a little bit sick with worry. But, look, it's part of the job. You seem to have also used humour very deftly, uh, particularly with the... uh, uh, You have a a lovely little routine in which you talk about the number of uh, undercover figures who have referred to your personal hygiene, your (laughs) personal... your attire. Um, Do you find that that sort of uh, helps to to publicise some of these things, to to make make fun of uh, of them? Oh, look, and also you have to make fun of yourself. I, you know, I often laugh with my family about what a complete idiot I am sometimes. I'm I'm really good with some technology and others. Like I once accidentally had my, I had my phone in my pocket and I accidentally tweeted a whole lot of jumbled random words. Um, And then when I looked, somebody had said, are you being kidnapped? Is this is this code? And I said, no, it's just a pocket dial. And then I, don't, I still don't know how I do this, but sometimes I accidentally send a Google map with a red pin that says Kate McClymont's location and I sent it to the head of the Hells Angels. <laughs> I was like saying, come and get me. Um, no, and I think that um, 
um, I think, and social media also allows you to call people out. Like only recently, um, I was covering an ICAC case, and one of the barristers who's acting for one of the people I'd been writing about, um, you know, just said, oh hello, how are you? And he said, I see you're still as ugly as ever. And I just thought, really? Like, I just think that's completely unnecessary. So I put it up on Twitter and, you know, it has the effect. You don't make a comment. You just, you know, put it up and say, you know, lawyers can be so witty and charming and here's what this person said. And I think that's in some ways a really effective way of, you know, calling people out. Because I just think that, you know, the civil discourse that is happening in our society at the moment, it's just really beyond appalling, and especially on social media. I was going to say that if you wouldn't say it to someone's face, but he actually did say it to my face. But my rule of thumb on Twitter is that if you wouldn't say that to someone's face when you are talking to them, don't put it up on Twitter. Don't Mm. say all these vile things. You know, disagree with people by all means, but... I just think our um, our civil commentary is just pretty horrible at the moment. Particularly for powerful women in Australia. I mean, there's that, that sort of really nasty undercurrent of uh, misogynistic messages directed to um, public figures, whether they're in the media, whether they're, they're uh, in politics on, on either side. Um, I'm just struck sometimes by how vile these messages can be. I know, and it's interesting that so much of um, the discourse about women is also about appearance. And I think it was really interesting when Karl Stefanovic wore the same suit for an entire year and no one noticed. And yet, you know, people like Lee Sales on 7.30 and Carl's then colleague, Lisa Wilkinson, are always being called out by, you know, what they're wearing, what they look like. Um, Even, I just found it interesting, Catherine Brenner, uh, who recently had to stand down as the um, chairwoman of AMP, There was even discourse not about her just doing her job badly, as the accusations were, but doing it badly because she was a woman. Why can't you just be held to the same account as anyone else because of your Mm. job, not because of your gender? And there was commentary even by female reporters about how much she was, you know, spending, had spent on her hair or... um, or that she had hitched herself to mentors. I thought, well, isn't that what people do to get ahead? Mm, mm. So I just thought even the the downfall of a prominent woman was interesting in the way in which it was covered. When you see so much of this sort of uh, nastiness, both in terms of the issues we've talked about but also some of uh, what you've covered as an investigative reporter, do you find it hard not to become embittered and overly cynical about uh, politics, about the way, uh, way way the country is going? Do you find yourself walking around Sydney sort of playing spot the, spot the underworld figure or uh, pick the bribe? <laughs> no, I, I honestly, I do that all the time. I'm, I do have an amazing ability to be talking to somebody and eavesdropping on another table at the same time. <laughs> it's a skill that I have developed. But um, people often ask me if I'm cynical about politics. And I think 
No, there are so many people in politics that go into it for the right reason, not everyone. I'm more um, disappointed by the quality of our political debate. And I think that that's... Um, I think it's a great sadness to the general public. But I think that the media is partly to blame for that as well, or maybe largely to blame. And I look back and I think it's this 24-hour media cycle. It's um, when things should be off the record and they're not. And I think politicians are not overly confident in engaging with reporters in case they accidentally slip up. And that is reverberated throughout Twitter. Um, for instance, I was um, talking to an American journalist today who was covering the Trump campaign and she said that there was one occasion when a baby was crying and she said Donald Trump was clearly joking when he said... Um, get that baby out of here. He said it in a humorous way and the audience took it in a humorous way. But reporting it on Twitter, Donald Trump said, get that baby out of here. Well, Twitter erupted, you know, look how callous this man is. I mean, and I'm, I'm not saying it in any way to defend Donald Trump because, you know, heavens knows how, um, you know... <laughs> how careless he is with the truth. All I'm using is it for an example to show how the context of things mm. is often missing these days. You just get one line and you don't yes. get the rest of, you know, how it was said, where it was said, what was in the context. And I think that the media is, you know, largely to blame for our gotcha reporting. It is, you know, looking for that you know, that, that the moment of destruction. And I think that um, it does become a feeding, uh, sorry, a, a feeding frenzy in the moment somebody is slightly wounded. We're like a pack of sharks circling, you know, waiting for the, the you know, complete destruction of that person, which, uh, you know, I, I think can be, I think it's upsetting for everyone, really. Mm. That's not to say they... Someone might not deserve that, but it is the feeding frenzy of the media, you know, I think must be shocking to be in the middle of it. Mm, mm. You have a uh, terrific reputation within journalism for uh, for being uh, a good mentor. Um, what does one do to be a, to be a, a good mentor? Look, I think all you can do to be a good mentor is be a good listener. What you're trying to do is to listen to um, what your mentees, you know, what their, what their career goals and aspirations are, to try to help them to get there, try to give them good advice mm. and sometimes just to, you know, give them your experiences. Like um, I don't think it's quite a good idea. If you're going to pitch for that job, maybe do it this way. Or, um, and especially with women, it's trying to get people not to undersell themselves because I still think that, um, you know, men will go in there and say, I can do this job and will oversell themselves. And women will undersell themselves. They won't take credit for the fabulous things that, they have done because they think 
it sounds like boasting. Mm. So it's trying to get them to give a good account of themselves, be honest to themselves, but, um, you know, don't sell yourself short. How many people would you be mentoring at the moment? Um, I've got four um, mentees at the moment, but they keep going and getting fabulous jobs and they don't need me so much anymore. But, um, look, I really... I, I like doing it and I wish that, you know, there had been people doing that when I was around because it doesn't take up, um, you know, much of your time. It's And you can just be on the end of a phone. But I just think it's a great thing to, to try to help. And I'd, look, I'd be happy to help young men as well. But um, I just think it's a great thing if you can try to give back to other people um, and even... You know, people coming and saying, I've reached an impasse in my story. You know, what do you think I should do next? Even being mm. able to help mm. in that way is always, um, you know, it's, it's always great. So what advice would you give to your teenage self? I think the best advice is to have confidence in yourself and to have self-belief. And if you don't have it, pretend you have it. Because I just think, you know, you look at life and you think people get so far by just having confidence. Um, and also, you know, don't be afraid of failing. And don't ever compare yourself to your colleagues. Don't try to run your life um, by, you know, saying, oh, someone's got a promotion and I didn't do that. You know, set your own goals, set your own standards, but... In the middle of that, I just think one of the crucial things is to have an ethical framework, and that will always stand you in good in good stead. If you can go to sleep at night feeling that even if you missed an absolutely fantastic story, you didn't break your word, that is more important than gold. <laughs> What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Oh, I don't know. I still believe in, you know, basic human decency, although I've seen a lot of um, the other side. But I just think, um, you know, you couldn't ask for a, a better or more interesting time to be alive. Whatever side of politics you are on, the world is an incredibly interesting place. Slightly depressing at times, but um, it's nevertheless, you know, absolutely fascinating. When are you most happy? I think my happiest moment of the day is two moments. Walking in the morning and every night I read a book. Every single night without fail. I cannot go to sleep unless I have read part of a book. Uh, fiction or can be non-fiction Fiction, as well? non-fiction. But English literature is still, as I said, one of the great joys of my life. And I just think... You know, I look at my children, I think if there's one thing I'm thrilled that I've given them is just a passion for for reading, for, you know, it just opens so many worlds outside what we know in our own narrow world, whether it is, you know, escapism or learning something yes. new or, or learning how people work. I think that's um, a really fantastic thing. What have you enjoyed reading lately? 
Well, I've just finished um, reading Katie Tur's book. Um, she's the NBC correspondent who covered the Trump campaign, and her book is called Unbelievable. And it's a really uh, riveting first-hand account of being in the press corp from the very early stages. And she was one of the journalists saying, you know, saying to her headquarters, he has a good chance of winning this. Just from being part of the Trump crowd, like hearing what, Mm. you know, what they were saying, because I think in the outside world you'd think, you know, when you heard some of the things, you know, Trump said on tape about women, you thought, oh, this has got to be the end of him. And it never was because the true... Trump believers, I think, um, then as now, they just disregard those things that other people might think would be the end of you. And I, I just think, I wonder what would happen if any of our politicians had said such things. What would happen to them? Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any guilty pleasures? Guilty, oh, apart from chocolate. No, I, I, um, one of my guilty pleasures is, in fact, playing bridge. I am an absolute bridge fanatic. <laughs> so, <laughs> and in fact, I think when the um, when the Obeds hired someone to investigate me, they must have been completely beside themselves that in the evenings I would go off to, um, you know, to, to to book club or to go and play bridge. They must have thought, oh, is this woman so tedious beyond belief? Why isn't she go-go dancing in a cage or sniffing cocaine in a back bar somewhere? No, she's bidding six no-trumps at the bridge club. Your guilty pleasures weren't guilty enough for them. No, sadly not. Uh, And finally, Kate, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Oh, that's a horrible question. Which person? I don't know whether... I really don't know whether I can answer that. I don't think there's... I think growing up in a household where honesty and acting ethically, maybe you get that from your parents. I don't know. But it's something that... um, I've always been taught to believe and I hopefully have taught my children. And it's also that thing is um, to treat people as you would hope to be treated by them. And it's one of those things that um, you must always treat everyone from the the, the taxi driver to the prime minister the same. In fact, um, I can remember once... Um, having a very robust conversation on the phone, you know, saying to somebody, you know, if you could believe, which I sincerely doubt you can read. And afterwards, um, the person said, oh, I was going to ask you if you wanted to call the police about that phone call. I said, oh, don't worry, it was just with the Prime Minister. And um, <laughs> and I thought, you know, if you, you know, sometimes you have to just give as good as you get. So treat them all the same. Kate McClymont, uh, investigative journalist extraordinaire, thanks very much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life Podcast. Well, it was my pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.